Well, we're in the book of Revelation, and uh, we're in chapter 9. And uh, we're at the, we've, been, we've covered the seven seals, and now we've come to the seven trumpets. And we've covered trumpets 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And I'm sorry, yes, and 5. And today we come to trumpet number 6. So we begin in Revelation 9, 13 to 21. Revelation 9, 13 to 21. Very good. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So, another strange and difficult vision before us today. First of all, for those who may have just heard this for the first time, I just want to sort of read it again in summary. Okay? So the sixth angel blows his trumpet. John hears a voice coming from the golden altar, which is before God. And the voice tells the angel to release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. So he releases these four angels who had been prepared to kill a third of mankind. And as a result, a massive army, like 200 million mounted troops, is assembled. And the horses and their riders wore breastplates the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And out of the horses' mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur, killing a third of mankind. The power of the horses was in their mouths, but also in their tails. For their tails were like serpent heads. 
and by them they wound people. The rest of mankind, the other two-thirds that were not killed, the ones who survived, did not repent of their works or give up worshiping demons or idols, nor did they repent of their murder or sorcery or sexual immorality or their thievery. So, the first four seals that we read about when we were talking about the seven seals seem to describe the calamities which characterize this present age between the first and second comings of Christ. The fifth, sixth, and seventh seals depicted the saints in heaven waiting for the judgment day and then the terror of the wicked at the beginning of the judgment day and finally the silent half hour at the dawn of the appearance of the Lord. Similar to the, those first four seals, the first four trumpets describe cosmic calamities which characterize the present age. But then the fifth trumpet presented us with some difficulties in terms of where it fits in the timeline that we're presented with in Revelation. It doesn't fit in so easily as a description of the character of this age that we are presently in. And this raised the issue of a brief time right before the return of Christ when Satan will be unleashed and things will temporarily get much worse than through the rest of this age. And before we go any farther, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this brief time before the end, which, because we read about it in several places, and it's important to the interpretation, in my opinion, of this particular passage. After my son Josiah graduated from high school early, he spent most of a gap year on an island off as part of Honduras living with a missionary family. And since this island is sort of insignificant politically and detached from the mainland, there is no police presence there and virtually no law enforcement. So when another young man who lived there, native there, stole a lot of my son's stuff. My son gathered together a large group of his friends and they went to this guy's house where the, where the, the thief lived and confronted him. The thief was not so foolish as to resist this whole group and it was obvious that this stuff was Josiah's and so he was able to gather all of his stuff from the thief's room while they were standing there on guard. Well, Jesus tells a similar story in Matthew 12, 29. When he's talking about why he casts out demons. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Here Jesus speaks of Satan as a strong man who rules the house of the world. And he speaks of his own coming into the world as entering this strong man's house to take stuff which was rightfully his. And in order to capture his people from this strong but evil man, he must first tie him up. So in this age, Jesus is saying, he has bound Satan or tied up Satan in order to retrieve his treasures. We also read about this in Luke 11, 20 to 22, where Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Again, Satan is the strong man here. Jesus is the stronger one who comes into Satan's house and overpowers him so he can plunder his house. So, Jesus is in the business of plundering Satan's house. And guess what? We are the plunder. We were the devil's prey. We were his slaves. We were his victims. But now a far greater power has broken in. Jesus has come to undo the work of the devil. Jesus restrains the power of the evil one so that he might snatch us from his control. Now this brings us to Revelation chapter 20. Which of course we haven't come to, but it's important in order to interpret these passages in chapter 9. Let me read you uh, 1 through 3 and 7 through 10. Hopefully you'll get to see it up here. Very good. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Uh, this angel apparently refers to Jesus, who is also depicted as an angel in Revelation 10. And remember in the vision at the beginning of Revelation says he has the key to death and Hades in 1 8, 18, I'm sorry. Verse 2, and he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And by the way, that word for bound is the same Greek word as we just read in, in Matthew 12, where the strong man uh, has to be bound up. And so he binds him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, and this is this period we've been talking about, after that he must be released for a little while. Then skipping down to verse 7, and when the thousand years in which he's bound are ended, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we see Jesus seizing the devil, binding him for a thousand years in order to break Satan's hold on the nations so he could no longer hold them in the grip of his deception. So what does it mean, this deceiving of the nations here? Well, remember in the Old Testament, God called Israel to be his chosen people. Unlike all the other peoples of the earth, God graciously gave them his word and his grace. All the other peoples of the earth were kept in the dark under the deceptive power of the evil one until Jesus came. Now God is the God who made all people. And the fact is it's too small a thing for just one people to worship him. So in sending Jesus, God opened up the way for every people on earth to hear and receive God's word. And this made it necessary to get rid of the one who had been deceiving the other nations and to bind that strong man, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, for all the years necessary to plunder God's elect from the strong man's house. But once the process of gathering that plunder is over, Satan will be released for a brief time to deceive the nations once more, which will lead to a great attack upon the people of God, though he will, Jesus will rescue them in the midst of it. Now, since many commentators associate the fifth trumpet, which we talked about last week, with this present age in which we live, I want to remind you that I took a different interpretation of this. I concluded that instead it needs, it must be, it's best taken to refer to the brief time of Satan's release before the final coming of Christ. Why? Because whatever the fifth trumpet refers to, why am I bringing this up now? Because whatever the fifth trumpet refers to, probably the sixth trumpet refers to as well. So that's why I'm going over this again. The reason, the main reason that I concluded this was because the fifth trumpet is said to only last for five months. Most commentaries just seem to ignore this five months and gloss over it like it doesn't really matter. But to me, we have to pay attention to this. Five months is too brief a time to be taken as describing this present age. A few chapters later, in chapter 20, it's referred to as a thousand years. 
five months and a thousand years are very different from each other. But this five months does fit in very nicely with what Revelation 20 verse 3 calls a little while when Satan is released. In Revelation 8.13, also, remember how the trumpet, the, the uh, fifth trumpet is clumped with the sixth and seventh trumpets as being significantly worse than the first four? The first four depict this present age, but after that, something has changed from the first four trumpets. The fifth trumpet is so bad that it makes people want to die. Now, of course, some people want to die today, but not many. And, but not only that, it says that they can't die. There's something different. This isn't Kansas anymore. And now there are several things which incline me to the conclusion that the sixth trumpet is also talking about this brief unleashing of evil time. First of all, the language of verse 15 of Revelation 9.15 is very similar to release of Satan language in Revelation 20 that we just read. Remember, it says that the four angels have been bound and now they're released. Same kind of language as how Satan was bound and then he'll be released in Revelation 20. And the Greek word again for release is the same. And this sixth trumpet, though it is so severe that a third of mankind are killed, it doesn't bring about the conversion or repentance of any, as we see in verse 20. This sounds a lot like Revelation 20 as well, when it says that Satan is enabled to deceive the nations for a brief time. So, as I see it, the sixth trumpet speaks of a time right before the Lord's return when Satan will be unleashed. Now last week when we talked about the fifth trumpet, we saw that during this time, Satan will afflict non-believers with psychological and spiritual torment. At least that was my take. And now the sixth trumpet tells us that during these days of the sixth trumpet, mankind will also be afflicted in some way which will kill a third of the, of the earth in terms of a large chunk of the population. Though presumably not a majority. Who knows how? It could be war. It could be genocide. It could be a plague. It might be something else. Greg Beale thinks that it is referring to the spiritual death caused by deception. And he might be right, but if that's true, why does it only kill a third of mankind? And how does it kill some and wound others? Whatever it's referring to, it continues to paint a horrid picture of this period of time, a hellish time of history. 
We don't know for sure that the people of God are immune from the plagues of the sixth trumpet as they were from the, seventh, the fifth trumpet because the sixth trumpet doesn't explicitly say that as the fifth trumpet does. Though some people presume that the statement in the fifth trumpet that it's, that it's just for non-believers continues into the sixth. But one thing we know for sure is that God's people are sealed by him in such a way that they're protected from harm in all of this, even if they die, even if their loved ones reject them, even if they end up bedridden in intense pain, they're protected from spiritual harm in all this. So, now we, let's just think about this sixth trumpet in light of what it can mean for us in our lives what we can take away from this. And to do that, first I want to talk a little bit more about this time of Satan being unleashed before the end. We said last week that we are, as God's people, we are reliving the life of Christ. We are reliving the story of the gospel. Just as Jesus, after years of effective ministry and many disciples along with a lot of struggle and a lot of opposition that at the very end he faced a day of darkness culminating in the cross so the church the body of Christ will also face a day of darkness before its day of resurrection but there's another dimension here as the new Israel, we are also reliving the life of Israel in the Exodus. The period of the plagues got worse and worse. The final scene was the scariest. In the final scene, remember, God's people were surrounded by the enemy. And they looked hopeless until God intervened and parted the sea in a very similar kind of way. In fact, in Zechariah 14, it describes this scene prophetically looking into the future using the language of the Exodus to do so. So the fact is, this is just good drama. Like show business. God explains this to us in Romans 9.17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Quoting Exodus 9.16. So here, God explains why he allows these terrible enemies to rise up and loom so scary before God's people. He says... I do it so that I might show my power in you. In other words, he raised up Pharaoh, a formidable foe, so that he could overcome Pharaoh and demonstrate his power. If, if I wanted to prove 
that I was the, the greatest boxer in the world. And I said, I'll prove it to you. I will fight Francis. Well, you know, I don't know. Is that going to prove that I'm the best boxer in the world? Well, probably not, right? But if I were to say, I'm going to fight the guy who's the heavyweight champion of the world, and I could beat him, that would prove something, wouldn't it? In the same way, God raises up enemies like this so that he can show his power by overpowering them. The greater the enemy, the greater the victory. The darker the darkness, the brighter the light when it comes. And it's so good for us to know this. It's so good for us to know that things are going to get worse near the end, but it's just the beginning of a great show of God's power. Because it's so easy for us to get discouraged when things in the world seem to be moving downhill. As if we're getting farther and farther from the kingdom, when in actuality, we're getting closer and closer to the revelation of the kingdom. Next, I want to talk about the restrainer. You know, in Revelation 9, 14 and 15, we read that these four angels are bound before they're finally released to wreak havoc upon the world. And, you know, these are four evil angels, of course. So, what is it that is holding them back? And in Revelation 20, we see this this angel that has a big key, a chain, remember? And he binds Satan with this great chain. So what is this great chain that holds Satan back in Revelation 20? We also read about this power of restraint that holds evil in check in 2 Thessalonians 2. So that let's put that up. 2 Thessalonians 2. There you go. It's talking about the day of the Lord's coming. That's clear from the first few verses. It says, that day will not come until the rebellion comes first. By the way, this makes me wonder whether this rebellion is the same thing about as the day of this unleashing of satanic power. But anyway... It will not come, the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in, in this time. So, in other words, there's powers of evil and people that represent evil and they're being held back now. They're being restrained until the time for them to be revealed. And it says, he says, you know what is restraining him. Okay, what, what's restraining him? For the mystery, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So now it's not just some power that's restraining it, it's a person, he, who restrains this evil one. So what is this restraining power holding back the forces of evil in the world? 
What is the dam that you know eventually will be burst? What is what are the chains that hold Satan from deceiving the nations? Who's the one restraining this man of lawlessness? Well, who could it be? Bible scholars have said down through the ages, except the Holy Spirit. And one day, the restraint will be removed. The power of the Holy Spirit will be removed from holding him back for a brief time. And then the face of evil will be seen in all of its ugliness. But it's important that we recognize as evil increases that there's a purpose for it. That God is restraining it now and it could be much worse than it is today. We'll get to that in a minute. I also want to say something about idolatry here because we're told in verse 20 even after all this trauma a third of mankind are killed and many others wounded even after watching all of their fellow mankind or many of their fellow mankind be killed and wounded it says they did not repent of their idolatry they didn't give up their idols they didn't uh, turn away from the things that had brought all this to pass. Man's attachment to his idols is amazing. Even though it's killing him, the alcoholic clings to his bottle. Even though drugs have turned the man into a shadow of his former self, the addict just wants more and more and more. This is the nature of idolatry. We cling to our idols. We refuse to let them go. We think of them as the source of our life. And behind it all is a smiling deceiver who specializes in fooling people into turning their natural inclination to worship into the worship of idols. We also see here that their idolatry manifests itself in other sins, murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, theft, Idolatry is the heart of every sin. Beale says, Idols are one of the main instruments used by the powers of darkness to keep people in darkness. Now there's repentance. In verse 20, we're told that those who survive these plagues of this sixth seal and do not repent, they do not repent of their evil deeds or of their idolatry. In spite of all that they've gone through, they still don't repent. It reminds us that repentance is a gift of God. It's not something anyone can do on his own. It is not something we can incite other people to do. 
Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God may perhaps grant them repentance. This is not something we can do. It's something God does according to his own good pleasure. He grants repentance. Perhaps. So... Even though God uses things like pain, or love, or miracles to provoke repentance, it's, these things are never enough on their own. Repentance comes only by the work of God. Remember the story Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19-31. And when the rich man asked if he could be sent back to his brothers who are still alive on earth in order to warn them about the coming judgment. And Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So, repentance should be celebrated when it's given and prayed for when it's not. All of this is another good reminder about the sovereignty of God over the world. We see again in this sixth trumpet that the directives are being given from the golden altar where God sits. And not only is it his directive, it's apparently his answer to the prayers of God's people, the saints, as they have cried out to him to take vengeance on his enemies, on their enemies and their persecutors. The seals and the trumpets contain horrific things, but it's all ordered from the throne of God. It may appear that all hell has broken loose. But those who know and trust God's word will see God's plan unfolding and sing hymns from prison. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies will be their cry. And weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you that in the face of a world full of turmoil and danger and chaos and disorder, that we know that you are still on your throne and that you are working out your purposes so that in the end 
we will all stand in awe before you. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Give us patience. Give us trust when that turmoil splashes into our lives and when we deal with a world that seems dangerous and scary. Help us, Lord, to know your peace. Thank you now for the privilege of the invitation to come to the table. And it reminds us, Lord, that you set a table before us in the midst of our enemies. And we come to this table, O oh Lord, in light of, in, in the context of a uh, world that, that hates you. And yet, dear Lord, it doesn't prevent us from enjoying the banquet of your grace that came through Christ, continues by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the end will be offered to us in its consummate form in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Please be with us and visit us by your grace here as we partake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.